Well, good morning again, uh, and welcome for all of us that are gathered here. If, if we haven't had a chance to meet, uh, my name is Brian Robertson, and I'm the lead pastor here, uh, and I want to extend a special quick welcome to those who are gathering online in our online campus there. Uh, very grateful to have you as well. Uh, we hope that you're encouraged this morning. We hope that this morning connects with your heart in a way that is uh, redemptive and challenging. Uh, if you are newer online, we'd like you to register and, and kind of find a way there on the online campus to let us know that you're there and, and to, we can maybe reach out to you and let you know the various things that are going on. Um, but it's good to have you as well. Well, we're in this teaching series uh, that we are in. It's called uh, when, uh, sorry, Why Faith Makes Sense. We're taking a look and wrestling with some of the obstacles that people may have uh, to the Christian faith, things that kind of stand in the way for someone who's understanding and how they may want to follow after God. We're trying to see if we can have a stronger faith and a more uh, way to which we can place our confidence in Jesus in the midst of all the various obstacles, various things that are challenging that maybe, maybe make it difficult for some people to have faith. Uh, we're not trying to do this in a way to, to you know, arm us for arguments, but we're doing it in a way that deepens our own faith and deepens our, our understanding of God. These conversations around these obstacles of faith are really important to understand that our faith is founded on reason. It's founded on reasonable things. It makes sense, even in light of the various obstacles and the various things that are before us. And we've made mention of this before but during the series, but if this conversation kind of invigorates you, if it kind of gets you moving a little bit, we have some resources that we've found to be helpful in our own study, and we want to make those available to you as well. So out in the lobby on a high-top table out there are a handful of books uh, that you may find to be encouraging. Don't take our books, but it at least gives you an idea of what some of the books that we've been studying, we've been reading over the years, that kind of help shape and give us an understanding of our faith. There's even a couple of options out there if you have a young person or a teenager in your house and you want to have these conversations with them, or if you just want to read a teenage version of those things, you're very welcome to get those as well. But those are just ways that we can continue this kind of dialogue and continue to go after those as well. These have been really helpful to me personally as I've read them over the years. And then as I've reread some of them in my preparation for this series. And so as I've looked over them, they've been really helpful to me. I hope that they're helpful to you as well. During this series, we've looked at such topics like the existence of God. Is it reasonable to believe that God exists and all the various things that are out there? Is it reasonable or is it just kind of blind faith that God believes or that we believe that God exists? We looked at the problem of suffering and why suffering makes sense in light of the Christian teaching and how we don't necessarily know why always, but it gives us the resources to go through it. We've looked at the reliability of Scripture and can we trust what has been handed down from generation to generation to hold within it truth and authority? Can we trust this thing that was written thousands of years ago? We looked at that. And last week we looked at the understanding of sin and a proper understanding of sin, scripturally speaking, and how that makes sense of our life and how it makes sense of the life of the world around us and how it doesn't just blind faith, but it actually makes some sense. But this morning, we want to take a look at the stain of church history. We're looking at the stain of church history. How do we reconcile Christian faith, in other words, with what we see in the world at large and the way in which the church has perpetrated violence and oppression all in the name of Christ, all around the world that horrible and horrific things have happened in the name of Christ? And how do you reconcile the message of Jesus with the church that has 
dark stains on it. And that's kind of where we're going this morning. It's where we want to look at this morning. So let me pray for us, and we'll see what God will teach us together. God, we are grateful for you this morning. And God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, hearts to respond to what you would teach us about how to have faith in the midst of all the obstacles, in the midst of all the things around us. Father, we also pray that you will be uh, in and around the churches, not only here, but all over Lima and Allen County, that we would be faithful to what you've called us to. We pray that uh, Heartbeat of Lima and other ministries would, would do your work and that people would see your grace in the midst of it. Father, we now pray for us as we gather this morning that you would teach us and you would open up our eyes to see you in greater ways. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, many people would take a stand against Christianity from kind of a personal uh, disillusionment or personal disappointment with what they've experienced in a church where they've experienced negative, hurtful things in a church, and so they take exception to Christianity. They take a stance against the Christian faith because of they've, their hurt and what they've seen in the church. And they see horrible things, not only personally experienced horrible things within the church and abuse of power within the church, but they see the hypocrisy of leaders in the church. And they see that going on around, and they see it, and they experience it, and then they run the opposite way. They don't want anything to do with organized religion or with Christianity when they see the oppressive and the violent and the various ways of abuse of power that have been done all in the name of Christ. And so they run the opposite way. But what I want to suggest to us this morning, what I want us to explore, is it makes sense, or faith in Christ actually still makes sense to place your life under the teachings of Jesus Christ in light of all the atrocities, in light of all the violence, in light of all the abuse of power that we've seen in the world around us. It still makes sense to place your life under the leadership of Jesus. Because if we're going to take time, or if we're going to look honestly at the things, or the, or the way in which faith makes sense and the ways in which things move, if we're going to do that, then we're going to have to look at the glaring issues that have faced the church. We're going to have to look at the glaring problems that the church has. And the first problem is the problem of violence. The problem of violence. In his chapter on the book, Lee Strobel, which is one of the ones that are out there, but in his chapter he quotes a guy, an atheist by the, guy, by the name of Ken Shi. He's an atheist and he writes this. He says, Christianity has been used throughout history as an excuse for some of the most brutal, heartless, and senseless atrocities known to man. Historical examples are not difficult to recall. The Crusades, the Inquisitions, the witch burnings, the Holocaust. I do not see much in Christianity that I considered to be worth the having. And sadly, sadly, that critique of the Christian church is, is true. It's true. Christianity has indeed been used as an excuse for some of the world's most heinous experiences of people. Most, most horrible atrocities have happened and the church has either been silent or Christianity has been used as an excuse to perpetrate violence and oppression over people. And that's true. Not only on the world stage in some of those examples, but we've even seen abuses of power on the individual church stage. Cover-ups, sex scandals, embezzlements. A toxic culture has infiltrated into the church of power and politics and hypocrisy 
all the way through it. So we've seen it on the world stage and we've experienced it on the local church stage. So does all of that, does the problem of violence and oppression, does that discount the viability of faith? Does it make it just something just throw away? There's no reason to give my heart and my allegiance to Jesus because of all the violence, because it has been used and excused violence and oppression over people historically and even most recently. Well, I believe that the first response to any of this kind of critique, any of this kind of understanding of the Christian faith, the first response by Christ-following people, by Christians, before you get distracted by writing it off and excusing it and understanding all the various you know, nuances of all the various different sides of the story and all of that, before you start doing that, the first and probably the loudest response Christ-following people ought to have is one of lament. One of Lament. Lament can be described or be defined as just a passionate expression of grief. Grief. Where our hearts are heavy and break because we have seen the oppression of others in the name of Christ. And our hearts ought to grieve. Lament in the scriptures is a passionate expression of grief. Our first response and the loudest thing that we ought to do as Christ-following people when we see the problem of violence that's been perpetrated, especially on the world stage and where the oppressive of, of people have happened, when we address this problem of violence in church's history and we see the stain of it, it ought to be a passionate expression of grief, sorrow over the pain that has been caused by people that claim Christ. We ought to be the first to lament. Because when we brush it aside, and we just kind of brush it off, either excusing it for some other thing or, or thinking, well, that happened a long time ago and that's not happening today. When we do that, when we brush right past it, we minimize the hurt that it caused by the church. We minimize it. And we minimize the hurt that is still felt by people even today, by the church. We need to learn to say, as Christ-following people, we need to learn to say unequivocally that violence done in the name of Christianity is a terrible reality and we ought to lament. Lament. Publicly and privately for the horrible things that have been done. Because violence done in the church's history is fundamentally not consistent with the person and the work of Christ. It is not consistent with the message of Christ. Violent and oppressive impulses that we see throughout history, both in the church and outside of the church, that kind of violence, that kind of you know, vying for power, that kind of toxic culture, well, that all stems from what we talked about last week. That all stems from a disordered heart where we are not trying to find where, where we can follow Christ, but we're wanting to do our things. We're wanting to do our things. That violence, that oppression, that, that seeking to power over people, that is not the character of Christ. Nor should it be from his followers in any realm. We ought to remember that. That it is the violence and oppression is fundamentally different and fundamentally not consistent with the person and the work of Christ. So what do we do? When somebody brings up all the church's history of all the, the crusades and the inquisitions and all the violence that the church has perpetrated, well, as Christ-following people, we don't dismiss it. 
We don't brush it off. We, we learn to lament and say, I am grieving that as well. First response is to lament. The second problem that we see when we look at the stain of our history is the problem of character flaws in our leaders. There are character flaws in our leaders. Church communities seem to be characterized by infighting and by splits, by church splits. And people can't get along, and so they argue with each other, and they just split off and start off a new church, and another church, and then another church. And no one can get along. No one is kind. No one is loving. No one is gentle. But church communities we see are infighting and church splitting. And Christian leaders seem to be at least, at least as corrupt as the world leaders. We see lying and mishandling of funds and embezzlement and power struggles and sex scandals by Christian leaders. We see character flaws in Christian leaders. And we see men and women who fill churches on Sunday morning who have deep character flaws. And so people on outside looking in think if Christianity is what it claims it is, if Christianity is what it says it's supposed to be, then wouldn't we expect Christians to behave better? Wouldn't you expect this whole church full of people to have people who have better character, especially those who claim Christ as leader and they're leaders over these Christian organizations? And while at one level I agree with that, because when a person comes to Christ and gives their life over to the leadership of Christ and we learn to take on his character and learn to take on his way of being, then we ought to see a transformation in our heart. We ought to see kindness and gentleness and love and mercy more flowing out of our heart. We ought to see transformation and growth in our characters. We cooperate with the Holy Spirit. So I, on one level, I agree with that. But on the other side, I have to recognize that the assumption that deep within that, there's an assumption that Christians, somehow because we have Christ in our life, will automatically behave better and have a different character immediately. Sadly, that's just not true. It's not true. It's actually a mischaracterization of what Christianity teaches about us. It's a mischaracterization to, to understand what Christians and what the Christian teaching teaches about the human nature, about the human condition, the human heart. Because it's Christian teaching that teaches us that the human nature is broken. And all of our efforts for good behavior on our own will always fall short. And we won't earn our own salvation. We are far too weak to do anything on our own strength. We are sinners in need of a Savior. We're saved by grace, not by our works. It's only through the death and resurrection of Jesus that any path has been made for us to grow and to live eternally with Him. It's only through Him that we're rescued from sin and from death. We're saved by grace. Grace, that doesn't automatically make us better people. In fact, it reminds us that we are broken people. That's what the Apostle Paul was getting at in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where he writes this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of work so that no one can boast. So friends, it is by, by grace that we have been saved. And while we have been saved and have been renewed and we are to have our character renewed into His image and to, to continue to grow in there, we still have a long way to go. Just a long way to go. Which means 
the church buildings may be full of people on Sunday morning, but they're also full of people who are broken and have a long way to go, who are not perfect, which includes your leaders, which includes me. That way we may have given our heart over to Christ, and while we may fill the sanctuary, and while we may sing out worship songs, and while we may pray and give and be sacrificial, at the end of the day, we are broken people in need of a Savior. In need of a Savior. So the character flaws that we see, well, at some level, we ought to expect that because we're all broken. We're all broken. And while it is true that some will receive grace in their life and yet won't turn over the rest of their life, they won't turn over all of their life to the lordship or the governing leadership of Christ in their life, there are still areas, in other words, for each, where each of us do what we want rather than what Christ wants in our life. There are still areas of transformation that are needed in my heart where I need to say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I want to suggest that there are still areas in your heart that need the same thing. So the character flaws that we see in others, well, that ought to remind us of the core teaching of the Christian church, that we have all fallen short. All fallen short. And we are saved by grace. And we ought not put unrealistic expectations over others, especially those who are called to leadership realize that we are frail, broken people. And while we ought to see and expect some growth, some transformation, we also ought to recognize that we're all works in progress. Works in progress. It is true, as the saying goes, that a church is a hospital for the sick, not a museum for the saints. Right? And if that's true, then it means that this church will be full of people who fail at times, who stumble at times, who will still struggle with pride and arrogance, but who have been saved by grace. Who have been saved by grace. See, a or character flaws in people and Christians in the world, that's not a reason to give up faith. It's not a reason to throw it all out and think it's worthless. It ought to draw us to understand the core teaching, the core tenet of our faith, that we are saved by grace. We are sinners in need of rescue. And our character flaws ought to remind us of the outlandish love of God who stepped into humanity and rescued us. For we couldn't do it on our own. We couldn't do it on our own. The third problem that people may have when we look at the church history, and that is the problem of fanatics. Crazy people, right? <laughs> Some people, when they become a Christian, they become what others would describe as fanatical, crazy Christian kind of people. They, they, they want to live everything as best they possibly can, and they express loudly their disapproval of everybody else. How come you're not doing everything you're supposed to be doing? And they appear to be intolerant of others. They appear to be angry, kind of self-righteous, because they measure their obedience and their, how, how strict they are adhering to all the laws of God. And they're really, really faithful on it. They're really strict on it. They're kind of fanatical about those things. I mean, you know these people, right? You know these people. 
Some people, they think about a scale when you think about life with God. And you think about like on this side is kind of the nominal side where you're like a Christian by name. But that's about it. You don't really see much difference in your life. You don't really change in your character or anything else. But all the way on this side, not this side you guys, but this side of the scale are the crazy people, right? Are the crazy people. And these guys, well, they don't do those certain things. They don't talk like that. They don't dress like that. They don't go to those places. They don't drink those things. They don't do, because they adhere to the highest levels of moral standards. And they're doing all those little things. And so we assume that the right place to be is somewhere in the middle. I don't want to just be a Christian in name only, but I also don't want to be someone who can't do anything, and you can't do and you can't do, so I'll be somewhere in the middle. But that's a misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christ follower. Because that scale, that whole scale, assumes that Christianity is a scale on how well you adhere to some moral law. And those that adhere really strictly to it, well, they're the fanatical people. And those people that don't want to do anything with the church or anything, well, they're just the kind of nominal people. But so the idea of Christianity is somehow be somewhere in the middle. But Christians who would be intensely moralist or they adhere to the moral law as best they possibly can, Jesus had a name for them in his day. The Pharisees. Right? And they believed that they were right before God because of their intensity with which they lived according to the moral laws, which with they did not do the bad things and they did all the good things and they crossed all the T's and they dotted all the I's and they did it with fervor and intensity. And when you live that way, almost instinctively, you begin to be arrogant and prideful and looking down your nose on all those nominal Christians that aren't as intense as we are kind of thing. They have the right doctrine. They do the right things. They're at church and every time the doors are open. They have a Bible that's got more markings in it and writings in it and notes in it. They can quote more scripture and all that stuff. And anybody else, well, you're not as, you're not as intense as I am kind of thing. And that can breed superiority and arrogance and pride. And it can form all sorts of abuse in other people, assuming that everyone should be like that. But what if? What if the essence of Christianity really is that we are saved by grace? What if? What if the message of Christianity affirms that you are loved, deeply loved, not because your decisions warrant it, but because of the outlandish love of God himself? What if that was true? Well, that would lead us to a completely different end, would it not? Not one of moral superiority, but more of humility, of empathy, compassion, mercy, forgiveness, generosity. Not something you typically think of when you think of fanaticals, right? Because they're zealous and courageous, they're bold and intense, but they're rarely fanatically humble or fanatically gracious fanatically forgiving, fanatically empathetic, right? Perhaps it's not that they are too Christian, it's that they're not Christian enough. They're not Christian enough. They have fundamentally misunderstood the person and the nature of Christ. Because fanatical Christians, they see Jesus more in line than they like Jesus with the whip tell people how they're doing wrong. And they forget the Jesus who wrote in the sand 
and said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And as apprentices to Jesus, that we ought to learn to follow his ways, learning to follow the ways of Christ, not the ways of empire and of power and over and authority and domination. For we are saved by grace. And if we are saved by grace, we become willing servants of God and of others. This is what Jesus was getting at in Matthew chapter 20. Jesus called them, his disciples, together. And he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The church has inexcusably been a part of oppression of people. And the allure of power has led to violence against others. And we've seen leaders with major character flaws. And Christianity has their own, our own fair share of fanatics who just seem to, to heap on guilt for people not doing these things and living up to the moral code that we think they should live up to. And for all of that, for that stain in our history and that what we're experiencing now, we don't dismiss it. We don't glosp over it. We learn to lament. Grieve sorrowfully over that. But the answer to that fair critique of our stain in our history, it doesn't lead us to abandon faith. It doesn't lead us to throw it all out. Rather, I want to suggest it draws us to know the real understanding of the Christian faith, that the essence of Christianity is that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We're sinners in need of grace. We've been saved by grace. We need to be quick to admit our shortcomings, to not pretend that we're better than we really are. We need to call on the grace of Christ to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we need to be quick to walk in His ways and not our own. Now, some would say because of these problems and other problems, stains on our history, that some would say that this world would even be better without any Christians. Without any Christianity at all, that we wouldn't have the Crusades and the Inquisition and all the oppression and all the various things we've dislocated people and all that stuff. If Christianity just never came on. But I want to say that's not true. Even with the stains in our history and the the. the bad parts about our history. Even with that, the world is better because of Christ-honoring people, because of Christianity. And I don't have a lot of time to get into all these things, but I do want to point out at least three gifts that Christianity has given to the world at large. Even with the stains of our history, there's a positive impact that Christianity has made in the world around us. And the first gift is the gift of dignity. Christian teaching says that we have been all made in the image of God, both men and women, young people, both followers of God and not followers of God, that we've all been made in the image of God. And because of that, there's dignity, intrinsic dignity placed on every human life from the very youngest to the very oldest. Christianity brings the gift of dignity, whereas in other cultures and other times, they would just see someone who they didn't really like, didn't want anymore, the elderly or anybody else that didn't really want, or a child that you don't want, and you just get rid of them. But it is Christians who came along and said, no, 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 no. There's dignity in that life, intrinsic value 
because you've been made in the imago dei, the image of God. It's Christians that led to the eradicate of slavery worldwide. Much of the work in human rights in our world were spearheaded by followers of Christ who sought to live out the ways of Christ, the gift of dignity to this world. Second gift is the gift of compassion. Again, when you realize that your, your life is a gift, and you realize your life is a gift and you've been graced with, with breath and you've been receiving that through Christ, then it leads to humble compassion and working among the least of these. Compassion of those who are hurting, those who are ostracized, those who are pushed aside. That gift of compassion has led Christ-following people to found hospitals, orphanages, world relief organizations, food distributions, were mostly started by Christ-following people who sought to live out compassion when they saw the world turning a blind eye on the most vulnerable in our community. And it was Christ-followers who were seeking to follow Christ through compassion who did that. It's the gift of compassion to this world. The gift of literacy to this world, in large part, was driven by Christ-following people. Fueled by a passion to give people the message of Jesus, to find a Bible written in their own language, to teach them how to read it on their own. Missionaries started schools and helped people to understand things and to give them the ability to read and to have literacy. And where literacy increased in communities, the uh, empowerment of women increased. The oppression of others decreased. And so when we can give the gift of literacy... Many places, even in our own country, of higher education were founded by Christ-following people with the idea of advancing the kingdom. And so high levels of education were founded on Christian teaching and Christian people. Now, I don't bring all those up, and I could have bring up more. I don't bring up all those up some way to gloss over the stains that we talked about earlier, to just kind of think, well, it's, no, it doesn't matter. I only bring it up to recognize that while indeed there are dark periods of our church's history, and some of that is still going on even today, there have been far more positive things that have happened in our world as a result of Christ-honoring people seeking to follow the teachings of Christ in the very ordinary ways of their life. We have always been at our finest. The church has been at its finest. When we are more concerned with the greatest commandment of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving your neighbor as ourselves, than we are with gaining power and authority and proving ourselves right. It's always been more at our finest when we learn to do that. It's through our generosity and self-sacrifice, the movement of God's people to take seriously the call of apprenticeship and respond to the issues at hand in our community the way Jesus would. The way Jesus would. So with all of that, may it remind us and draw us to the core aspects of our faith, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And this morning, we're going to end our service with the Lord's table, which reminds us of the greatest expression of love the world has ever seen. That Christ came for us. His way was one of sacrifice and mercy and forgiveness. And this table, as we come and celebrate communion this morning, it calls us to leave from this place living according to the ways of Jesus, the way of grace and humility. To receive forgiveness for the disordered heart that we have and the wrong that our disordered heart can cause on the world around us, 
but to align ourselves with his way of mercy and justice, compassion, generosity, sacrifice, that we indeed would be his people as we go. And we practice open communion at Crossroads, which means if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come. We're going to take communion slightly different and slightly, slightly uh, familiar to you this morning. You'll be dismissed if you're here in person. If you're online, we hope that you have some juice or some crackers that you can take communion with us. But if you're here in person, you'll be dismissed from the backs of your section. You'll come up on the right-hand side. You'll come forward, and there'll be stations in front of each station or stations in front of each section here. There'll be two people, and we'll have a tray of wafers and a tray of juice. And if you feel comfortable taking the wafer and taking the cup from us, we invite you to do that. If you're uncomfortable with that, there's also self-serve or self-wrapped up little juice and cups, and you can take one of those on the tables as well. Then you can just kind of go around your section and come back to your chairs. And I just invite you to sit back in your chair and let's take communion together. So grab the come up, take the elements, go back to your seat, and sit quietly for a moment, reflective of what Christ has done for you, and then I'll come and we'll, we'll take the elements together. The Apostle Paul tells us as we come to the Lord's table, we ought to come with hearts of, of reflection and we ought to examine ourselves as we come. And this is not an examination, by the way, to know if we are worthy of this table, for this is a table, as we have said, for sinners who need Savior. And so this examination simply is a reminder of the sacrifice of Christ and the sacredness that we recall in His gift to us. So I'm going to invite you to a moment of silence to reflect on your need for a Savior, your need to have more of His life in your life. And then in a moment, you will lead you through the liturgy that will be on the screens. You can follow along with that, and then you'll be dismissed. And we'll serve and celebrate the Lord's table together this morning. So let's have a moment of silence.